And welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Will Button. What's going on, everybody? We also have Jeffrey Groman. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And we thought, well, we had a guest not show up. And then Jeffrey's telling us about all the horrible but fascinating things that are going on on the internet these days. And so we're going to talk about more breaches and concerns and stuff is going to freak me out, but I'm kind of curious in a morbid way to to hear about. So <laughs> I guess it, I guess let's just dive in. So Jeffrey, what what's broken in the world? Oh man, I got to tell you, it's been a crazy week. I think it started out last weekend when a piece of software called Kaseya, which is used by different managed service providers was found to be carrying malware in terms of ransomware. And so basically any managed service provider who uses this Kaseya to like manage their customers or the client environments, all of a sudden were just locked up. And that means that they can't, you know, that means they themselves are locked up and that means that they can't service their clients. So basically you're like, I, you know, if you're using an MSP that gets, that it uses Kaseya, you're basically like, you have no service. Like you have no IT service provider anymore because they're just, they're hosed. So that's how we started the, you know, the week coming coming out of the long weekend, the holiday weekend. And then Microsoft, uh, I think a couple of researchers found a, a really crazy remote code, remote code execution, RCE vulnerability in Microsoft Windows Printspooler. So there's a lot there. Maybe it's just worth uh, spending a couple of minutes and talking about what that means. So if you're not familiar with Microsoft Windows, going all the way back to the beginning of time, one of the biggest things that people used to do was print. And if you weren't printing off of your own machine, you were printing off of a print server, uh, which is very common. If you're not familiar, printers are these big oblong plastic devices that spit (laughs) paper out from time to time. Or toner, right? <laughs> it's funny because these are like le- this is like legacy stuff, but it still is right there inside of every Microsoft Windows, whether it's like the desktop version or the server version. They're all running the print spooler. It's a service that runs by default, and it just has all this legacy software in it because it's just been around for so long. And so some researchers have been spending time looking at that and they found this, again, it's a remote code execution. What does that mean? That means that I don't have to be connected to the machine to be able to like literally like log in to the Windows GUI to be able to exploit that vulnerability. And the exploit of that vulnerability gives me what's called system privileges. So system is basically like, a service account version of like your local administrator. So it's an elevated privilege that certainly could be used for all kinds of nefarious purposes. Interesting thing about it though, is that that you, I think if I remember right, or if I understood this correctly, you have to have a, a legitimate user account on the box to be able to take advantage of this, which makes sense because the print spooler is typically not something, it's not like a web server that any anonymous connection can use, utilize, do something, make requests of, et cetera. The print spooler is only available to users of that system. So you have to have a Windows user account already. 
So that was something that, you know, when you think about like the risk side of this, okay, how do I prioritize or what do I think about this vulnerability? Okay, well, if it if it means that somebody has to have local access or, you know, an account on the box already, then maybe some of my systems I'm less concerned about, but maybe if I have a Windows system that is exposed to the internet, I might be more, more concerned about that, especially if it's, let's say I like a, a SharePoint server, right, that ex- that's exposed to the internet where somebody out there might have a user account um, on my box for whatever reason. So then I'd probably be more concerned about it. But yeah, through this, and it went on for days of like just trying to figure out how we fix it. Microsoft was trying to figure out workarounds. Researchers were trying to find out workarounds. Can you just shut down the print spooler service? But that wasn't enough. That actually doesn't stop the vulnerability from being exploited. I think finally today, I, I saw a, uh, an update that Microsoft provided an out-of-band patch. Out-of-band meaning not part of their like Patch Tuesday, which is, I think, a monthly cycle. So instead, it's out-of-band to that. They just released a patch for, I think, for basically every version of Windows. So if you haven't gotten that, if you're not aware of this, you can certainly download it from uh, Microsoft. But yeah, that's basically it <laughs> in a nutshell, though I think there's a lot there to talk about. So it sounds like if you just delete all your user accounts, though, then it can't be used to exploit <laughs> anything, right? That is correct. Yeah. You know, okay. we used to talk about, you know, this is way back in the Bill, you know, before the Bill Gates famous letter about writing secure software. We used to joke that the best way to secure a Windows server was to fill the footprint with cement and then bury it in the ground. <laughs> so deleting every user account on the device is, you know, similar to that approach. <laughs> But effective. It is. It is. No, yeah, no, no, yes. We're we're paid on results. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, apparently it's been, according to Microsoft and and CISA, which is the, there's a government agency called the CISA, and they sort of track these vulnerabilities across all vendors and provide bulletins and that sort of thing. And and they claim that uh, these have been exploited or there have been exploits seen in the wild. I haven't heard of any specific breaches based on this, but clearly like something this big and this, this like sort of easy to exploit vulnerability is going to be, you know, there's going to be folks out there that are basically going to be testing, you know, every system they can to see if they can exploit it. So you just, Oh yeah. Cause, um, cause some of the people who are vulnerable to this are use are relying on the MSPs to provide their IT support <laughs> who can't do that because they've been locked up by <laughs> ransomware. Right. Yeah, about the perfect storm, right? <laughs> it is the perfect storm. So again, we're back to deleting all the users accounts is really our only option. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, going back to pen and, pen and paper um, yeah. forms and triplicate, if you still have them in a box in your closet, you might want to bring them out. I'm, no, I'm going to buy stock and carbon paper this afternoon. I think that's where we're going. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned before the show, Will, that you you went, you were in paying attention to some of the, I guess, recount stuff in Arizona, and they somebody mentioned that they should go back to paper ballots. Yeah, and I've I've been to a number of political. I, I'm fairly involved in Utah politics, and yeah, there are a few more than a few people. We've gone to electronic voting, especially during COVID, right, where we couldn't actually actually get together and vote. with paper or anything that looks like paper. And there are so many people that have brought up, I just want to go back to paper because I know you can count it. And and not to get political and not to go into (laughs) any of the the implications of of how that can go wrong, right? But it's it's interesting that, yeah. Hanging chads, my friend. Hanging chads. (laughs) Yes. Well, 
yeah, nobody on the outside can hack the paper, but that there are humans counting it. So, I mean, it's just, it's really interesting that a lot of this really comes down to what users do and how they approach it. And at some level, there's trust, right? And, and I think that's the point is delete the user's account is we're, we're kicking all the people off that we don't trust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I, well, I, and I think just to round out that the discussion about voting, I mean, I, once in a while, I will hear somebody talk about, hey, we should make it even easier to vote. Let's, why, don't, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we letting people vote over the internet or over their mobile phone? And if you hadn't thought about it in the past, like these two examples by themselves, like of the vulnerabilities and just how easy it is to, to manipulate or to break in should give anybody pause about thinking about having something like voting, something as critical to society as a whole to put it online or to put it on a mobile device or which is also online but you know what i'm saying like it's just it's so difficult to try and protect these things especially when you're talking about third-party software right you're running on windows or you know you're running your business on a piece of third-party software right (laughs) and you don't know you don't know yeah how well that company i mean listen when, when we're talking about microsoft they have they now have a long track record of you know, really trying to be on top of the security. And and I think they've, but how many lines of code are in, you know, Microsoft Windows? I mean, we're talking about an enormous, right? Oh, yeah. Chunk of work there. So it's, and then, and we don't know, like it's, that that really is the challenge. Like, you know, you try to think about the risk to your business and how to quantify risk. And when you're talking about putting a piece of software and running your business on that piece of software, like you have no idea what that risk really is. Well, And you talk about, you brought up the voting and just the security of all the things involved, but even down to the user devices, I mean, how many of those are compromised that people just don't know about? Yeah. It's it's so fascinating to me just to see all the different levels that this goes to and yeah, what what it effectively boils down to. Right. I mean, it's always talked about security versus, you know, sort of the usability, the convenience of it. And security always will get in the way of usability and convenience. I mean, we see that Mm -hmm. in all walks of life, you know, whether it's physical security where you have to go through a security checkpoint or something like that, and you got to take off your shoes or, you know, whatever it is that they're making you do. Like, There's always those inconveniences, but, you know, depending on what you're doing, and I think that's the important part for anybody running a business is what you know, sort of what, what due diligence are you doing or, or what, how are you thinking about the convenience versus the usability or versus the resilience, right? Mm-hmm. Convenience of just buying some piece of software or downloading a piece of software versus the the disruption, the potential disruption to your to entire business. And that has to be well thought out, I think, today, especially when we're doing so much more on, online. I mean, remember the days when it was not that unlikely or it wasn't that uncommon that you go into a store and the credit card swipey device thing was offline because the, the, the phone line was down or you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, remember that? And so they would take out from under the counter, they take out the, the doohickey that goes back and forth over the carbon, right? And everybody still yeah. had those. Today, like, that happens in your store. I was in a Home Depot the other day and they're like, the manager was like running around the aisle saying, sorry, sorry, the, we can't can't check anybody out right now. We don't know why. <laughs> There's no like, yeah. really workaround today. People don't really have that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I was at an IFA country store, and uh, which is just kind of a local farm store here. And what they were doing is they were they were basically grabbing, they'd 
jot down your credit card information and tell you that they were going to charge your card later, which didn't necessarily make me feel good. But then they gave you an invoice, a copy of the invoice, right? Right. Which was also fascinating in its own way because it was like, oh, really? You know? And yeah. And then, yeah, the charge came through later and they're like, yeah, don't leave that invoice sitting out anywhere. Because <laughs> if you do, it's going right. to be a problem. Right. And yeah, what do you do? Yeah. And again, I, I I just don't, I don't, I think that's, that's just sort of a, a short, a shortfall or, or just something that has not been really thought through in many businesses, many, you know, mm-hmm. many companies of just what happens if, you know, something, some key piece of software that we rely upon. And sometimes it's not even something you, you even think about or realize, like, let's go back to the solar winds example from right from January or, or last December, where it wasn't that wasn't the ransomware that was linked back to somewhere some group within Russia, and you know seemed like they were going after very specific companies and government agencies, but still very disruptive to your business. And you didn't even think about Solar Winds. Most people didn't even think about didn't even have an idea like who is Solar Winds. We never even heard of this company, but it's a piece of software that so many IT shops are using to manage their own infrastructure, servers, desktops, network gear, all that stuff which made it a prime candidate for being for, for hacking into it and putting basically embedding your malware into that piece of software because it's just it's ubiquitous like so many mm-hmm. companies use that so you know, ha- if you're sitting in the business office the business side of things you're not even going to think about some piece of software that your IT people use and how that can really disrupt your entire business or whatever it is that you do, if you're a government agency or your entire agency, to where they had to basically take themselves offline and investigate what happened and figure out what's going on. And, you know, it's just so disruptive to your entire IT organization. So everything else you were trying to do or the IT folks were trying to do gets put on hold until you can fix this problem or investigate it or do what you have to do. Yeah. But yeah, it's that's the, I mean, it's the... It's a situation that we're in today. And I think it certainly plays into when we think about like DevOps or DevSecOps, it certainly has to be part of what we're doing, right? So if you're building software and you're building it on top of open source libraries or connecting to you know somebody else's API or whatever else, I mean, there's probably several other scenarios, but what are you doing? Like what, how are you thinking about the security of that piece of software or that service that's being provided, whether it's a SaaS service or what have you. What happens if it's down? That's probably one of the most most obvious scenarios. But what happens if they they themselves get penetrated by these threat actors? Then what? How would you detect it? Do you have the ability to to detect it? How would you right? Like how would you respond to this? And it's I think the first step is just sort of thinking through that process because the truth is is that you can you know you can detect these things and you can respond to them, but not if you're not prepared, right? It's if yeah. you know if the first time you even hear about it is because the FBI is calling you and saying, hey, you've got solar winds and we've tracked that. The bad guys are in your environment. It's too late to try to figure out how do we detect it at that point, right? It's now you're just all hands on deck. It, it just behooves organizations to really start to think about this, especially with just the, the number of these situations. Ransomware is it's just a perfect example. It's so lucrative. It's not going anywhere. No matter how many times Biden sits down with Putin and talks about how ransomware has got to, you know, they got to put a stop to the ransomware. I mean, 
Obama tried to do that with with Xi, you know, back in the day in China several years ago. And, you know, it, it doesn't stop and it's not going to stop. So I, I just think these are examples of that everyone's got to take the heart and figure out, okay, how, what is, where is the risk to my organization? And what right. are the kinds of things that we can be doing to mitigate that risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things you can do that I don't know of a lot of companies that do this is implement a full-on disaster recovery and preparedness plan. You know, I've worked at a few companies in the past where we would, you know, we would actually take our, our backup tapes offsite and go to restore them onto, this was when we still had physical data centers and restore them onto new servers just to verify that we could bring things back up. And a lot of that practice came from whenever I was in the Navy, because that was a large part of what we did there. Of course, the, the stakes were a little different, but the principle's the same. You really don't know what the missing pieces are until you go out and try to do that. And that's that's the case. I think, I think that's a situation that a lot of these businesses find themselves in is whenever something happens and they are down, that's when the conversation starts. Oh, well, what do we do now? Well, the first step was to have this conversation before. <laughs> right. They, before the, you know, the, the first step to uh, getting out of a burning building is to plan your exit before the building's on fire. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Uh, I mean, well, to that to that point, like, how often have you seen people that had an entire backup strategy, never tested their backups, have an issue happen, right? Server goes down or whatever. You got to restore to the new system. And then they find out that the backup actually didn't work or the restore process doesn't work or whatever they thought was on the tape doesn't exist or, right. I mean, it's, yeah, it is so common. Yeah. I've, I've seen it a lot and been guilty of it a lot myself, even, you know, even after like the first time I was like, Oh, that was a painful lesson. I'm going to, I'm going to learn this time. And no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> because every, it's always, there's always like a unique little best, you know, last time, um, you were missing a certain set of files, you know, this time you had it stored in a location that you couldn't access or, right. Right. you know, so it's, it's like, you can't just do it once. You have to do it repeatedly because the environment's always changing. You know, maybe last time you restored from a particular server that now no longer exists, or you've switched to a different provider for some particular service, but it's, and it's hard. I think it's really hard for, IT teams and DevOps teams to get the buy-in to spend the time and effort to do that because a lot of the pressure is on build new features, push features to production, increase traffic to the servers, increase the conversion rate, you know, and doing disaster recovery planning and execution does nothing to increase the revenue of a business. One of my favorite analogies to that, I, I use it all the time is, because I just think it it just resonates well, especially here in America. But you think about football, right? So, you know, and it's the same sort of principle. Like if all your focus is on your offense, because that's what's, you know, that's sort of the analogy of the revenue, right? If all your focus is on offense, because that's where the points get scored and you can't win if you don't score points, right? And you forget about your defense, you're going to be in big trouble. Because you're most likely not going to be able to score enough points to overcome whatever deficit the lack of a good defense brings you. And then if you think about so then you would let's say the analogy one step forward and you say, well, what does a good defense mean? It means focusing on all the little things, right? A good defense means that if my guys can't consistently do open field tackles, 
we're going to be in trouble. If I don't have good coverage, we're going to be in trouble, right? It's the basics. There's nothing fancy. There's nothing like exciting about, you know, you're not scoring a, a quick six or anything like that. But if your folks aren't doing that and practicing, the only way that you are able to consistently do an open field tackle or provide good coverage or all those other little things that you've got to be able to do is if you're practicing them every week. And like you said, you're going back through tapes and like, which is the same idea, right? It's like exercising it and looking at, well, what happened last time? Why did we mm-hmm. fail? Or why, why did this go wrong last time? You know, you're reviewing tape, you're reviewing the, the videos and saying what happened and how do we do better next time? And if you're not doing that, then, you know, you think about it, a professional football team, like think about all the support staff that they have on both offense and defense, these coaches, the trainers, the equipment, all of that stuff that goes into both sides of the field. And if you're not doing that, you're not going to win. And I think the analogy mm-hmm. of the business is if you're not focused on both and really working both, you're just putting yourself at huge amounts of risk for, for something like this to happen. And then, you know, you're just going to be in big trouble. Yeah. I think the response has to be contextual too, because, you know, using that analogy, um, okay, we need defense to prevent the other team from scoring points. So we're going to send the defensive team out on four wheelers because they'll be more effective that way. It's like, well, wait, no, you, you can't really do that. And I think the same thing goes with your, in testing your disaster preparedness plan, you know, it has to be contextual. It has to be when you propose that you've got to be mindful of the fact that there is still an offense and you want to minimize the disruption to them, if not completely avoided as well, because I think there've been instances where the security team is like, Oh, that's, that's insecure. You know, we have to completely close that off to the point where it starts to, the security starts to hamper the business. Then, and so you, you really have to find out what that fine line or that balance between the two extremes there is. I think that's, that, that's a really important point is that if, you, if your security team is operating you know, in a black hole, as the old joke that you know, the security team is always sort of in the dungeon behind locked doors. No one else can get there. And it's that sort of thing. It's, that's the worst scenario ever. It really is. If your security team is not embedded in the business to where the security folks understand the business and understands revenue, I mean, because let's face it, what is the biggest risk any business faces? The lack of cash flow. It's right. not this Microsoft <laughs> yeah. vulnerability, right? It's not. Biggest risk you face is a lack of cash flow. Right, because so, that impacts my paycheck. <laughs> that impacts everything, like, right? I mean, that's that's the, you know, question is, is the business open tomorrow or not? That's, that's what defines it. So um, if the business isn't in line with that, I'm sorry, if the security team isn't in line with the business, with where revenue comes from and, you know, I, I couldn't care, you know, like if you've got a business process that is where the cash flow is coming from, then it doesn't matter like what the risk of the cyber risk is. Like that's the biggest risk you've got, right? And it's to your mm-hmm. point, like that's really what's what's important. And I see that too often that security teams are really just divorced of what's going on in the business. They don't understand business processes. They don't understand how the business makes revenue. And then those kinds of things that you said, like, oh, no, sorry, all those ports are turned off, firewalls locked down, and nope, sorry, you know, nobody gets administrative access to X, Y, and Z. And, you know, that's, what ha- that's when that happens, because all we're thinking about is best practice. And we're not thinking about risk and what's going on with the business. And you cannot divorce the two or else 
you're just yeah you're just setting yourself up for even more problems so so what do you do i guess if you find that you're uh a victim of one of these breaches i mean we talked about this a little bit with solar winds but i'm, I'm just curious to reiterate some of this it's like okay crap yeah. we got to turn it off before we get stewed into next year or whatever right so that is really probably one of the biggest challenges is what do we do now um, and it depends on what the situation is. So for something like solar winds, where they weren't the attack itself wasn't disruptive because threat actor that wasn't their goal. Their goal wasn't to disrupt people's environments. It was really to steal information, right? So yep. there, the disruption to you is you've got to investigate what happened because if you find that you are a victim of something like a solar winds style attack, you got to try and figure out what it is that the threat actor accessed, what data that was, you may have your own disclosure laws that require you to disclose it. Let's say you found out that they stole information that included personal information or you know protected health information or whatever else sort of falls under legal liabilities, things like in, in Europe, you have privacy laws like the GDPR, under in California, you've got the CCPA, and now other states are following suit. So it's this, you know these privacy laws where, if sensitive information, which is defined under those you know in those laws, gets disclosed by unauthorized parties, which would include you know one of these threat actors, then you've got to disclose. So you've got to figure that out. You've got to find out what they did, and that means investigating it, which means having somebody come in and, and help you with the forensics to figure that out. I mean, some companies, bigger companies, obviously have big security teams with forensic people on board and all that sort sort of thing. If you don't, that means you're out there trying to you know hire an incident response firm mm-hmm. to do that for you to run that investigation. So that's you know that that's one possibility. So, you know, getting back to like what Will was saying earlier, how do you be best prepared if you don't have that kind of a sophisticated security team on staff, then you should have a retainer in your back pocket for an incident response team that you know that you can pick up the phone and say, hey, guys, I need your help. Like, I'm in over my head. You got to, you know, and and you've got to have that practiced and exercised and, and obviously the contract signed and all that. All that should have happened before, you know, before you have an incident. But if, you've, if you're the victim of ransomware, in some ways it's a lot worse because now your entire business or at least parts of your business are disrupted or offline because this ransomware is on all your systems and you can't access anything. So now you've got to make this decision of, do I pay the ransom, which could be very, very expensive. And it's questionable about whether they would, whether paying the ransomware is going to actually make it any faster for you to recover? Or do you just try to recover on your own, not pay the ransom? You know, and that's a big decision that, you know, clearly is going to depend on context and what's what's been disrupted and what you have in place to be able to recover from. And right, you got to answer all those questions. But again, it's why you should have something practiced of, have you, you tried, how would you recover from you know, some kind of a disruptive attack like that. Like what happens if, like, let's say you're, you're a company of a few hundred, a few thousand, whatever. Well, what happens if 75% of your machines have ransomware on them or 50% of your machines, 25%? I mean, it's, it's going to be a big number. It's not like, you know, for most companies, it doesn't, you know, you're not going to be able to just sort of like replace all these machines and get back up and running. You're, it could be a matter of having to like basically wipe and 
reinstall everything back on a whole bunch of machines, including data. So how are you going to do that? Do you have the feet on the you know, boots on the ground to be able to do that? Or similar to what we talked about earlier, do you need to have a retainer in place with some outside services organization that can help you recover? And this case of this MS, the MSP is what happens if your MSP happens to be the one that gets hit? Then what? You know, do you, what would you do at that point? These are these are tough situations, but I mean, as sort of as disruptive as our world has become. These are scenarios that, you know, people used to probably call this like a hundred year storm or something, and they're not anymore. You really got to be prepared for these types of storms that can take down your business very, very quickly um, and for prolonged, you know, prolonged period of time. You know, and then getting back to what we said earlier, your biggest risk is, you know, running out of cash, cash flow. What happens if your computing environment is offline for several days? Do you have the cash flow to, to survive that? You know, you've got to, those are, that, that also enters the equation. So those are the things you've got to be prepared for. And there are ways to prepare for this. Like it's, you know, this is not uh, insurmountable by any stretch of the imagination. But unfortunately, most companies that, especially ones you read about in the press, are the ones that were not prepared for it and um, are really struggling when it happens. Yeah, I think one thing that you kind of touched on that I want to elaborate on is whenever you call in the forensics team, you know, or the experts to help you understand what the impact was, their answer is most likely going to be, I have no idea unless you've got logging <laughs> turned on inside of your system, right? Because you know that someone got into your network and, but unless you have like audit logging turned on between different devices, I've been into a lot of companies that once you're inside the network, there's no tracking anywhere to determine what you may or may not have done. Yeah, it, it, that's a really good point. It really, so here's, and we could we, we could spend another uh, entire episode on this, but herein lies, I think maybe the next step, and I'm, and I'm glad you sort of helped unpack this because I I just quickly said, I'll make sure that you've got some forensics firm on, on uh, you know, on retainer, but they're not all created equally. They have different tools that they use and they have different capabilities. And some groups will, some teams will just sort of come on site and they're going to use whatever you've got set up. And if you don't mm-hmm. have logging set up and if you don't have all the tools available for them, you're going to be in a, that, that's going to be a difficult situation. There are companies though that what, what they will do is they'll come into your environment and the first thing they're going to say is we're going to ship equipment to you and you have to install it. That's step one, because you don't have what we need to be able to pull the artifacts that we need to be able to pull. So that's another approach. And depending, again, depending on your situation, that might be the better approach for you if you don't have a strong security team and you don't have all these tools and processes in place, finding a forensics firm that will simply bring all their tools with them and and then they'll be able to pull it pull those artifacts themselves might be really necessary for you. It's it, it's just one of those things you, you have to sort of shop for that and, and know in the back of your mind what it is that you're looking for, right? What where where are your limitations? What are you, you know, what is your organization capable of, of performing? And what are you really hiring out for? You got to be really clear on that. What exactly are you looking for in terms of that service? clear that you are in that, the, 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 I think that the clearer it'll be like, 
who are the right one or two or three firms that you want to talk to and decide on, you know, which one you do a retainer with. And, and on that subject, just maybe just one last thought on that is, you know, some of the retainers are, you know, you, you pay up front for them and then you know that you've got a guaranteed service level agreement that they'll respond and, you know, on time for, but you might want to have a second one, you know, sort of a backup just in case. And uh, there are $0 retainers as well, where you just sign the contract, but you don't put any money up front. Obviously you don't get an SLA with that, but it may not be a bad idea to have another one in your back pocket because you just never know. Like this is, that's just the nature of the world that we're in right now is you just don't know. I guess the other thing that I'm wondering, because we're talking about, okay, you know, you, you'll, you'll get some forensic team to come in, you know, make sure that you've got things set up so they can get the information that they need. I'm assuming you can consult with these companies ahead of time to make sure that you have everything logging yep. what it needs to log, right? This just seems kind of obvious to me, I guess. But the other question that I have is, I'd like to be proactive and not have this problem in the first place, right? <laughs> and I recognize that if I'm leaning on another company to provide me a lot of these security services and they get breached, kind of like SolarWinds or some of these others, you know, they're performing a function within my network. I may or may not be able to mitigate that because you just don't know who's going to get hit next. My question is, what can I be doing? Like, what proactive steps do I need to be taking in order to, I guess, offset the easy, the easy stuff, right? Where some kid with a a script he downloaded off of 4chan comes at my Postgres server, right? And the next thing I know is, well, I forgot to update it last week. And so now they're in, right? Are, are there things that I can be doing to mitigate sort of the script kitty, easy, yeah, stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, good examples of that is, I mean, how how often, you, you don't even read about it anymore. It's not even, like, it just doesn't even um, open people's eyes anymore. No one's even surprised mm-hmm. when they see it. But if you you know go back a couple of years, remember how uh, how often we would see cases of like open S3 bucket, right? Mm-hmm. It had all kinds of sensitive information or proprietary information, right? I mean, it's still happening all the time. Or somebody sets up like a MongoDB box in EC2, and it's just world, you know, just you know, internet facing, world readable, yeah. yeah, exactly. And those are just full of vulnerability. I mean, MongoDB was never meant to be internet facing, right? That, you know, so how do you find that stuff? How do you, how do you defend yourself against that? And I think one of the easiest ways, and it's, it's not expensive, it's easy to do, is to have vulnerability scanners, right? The, the two biggest product companies out there that do this are Tenable and Qualys, and they both do it from the cloud. You don't even have to like install infrastructure in your environment. And the first thing you do is just have them, you know, subscribe to it, not that expensive, and have them scanning your IP addresses. Whatever external IP addresses you own, whether it's in the cloud, whether it's in your own data center, they're scanning it continuously and you're actually reading the report. That's step two. You have to read the report. <laughs> if you don't, then you're not going to do anything about it. So, you know, like it, if you've got that Postgres database that's that's unpatched, or this MongoDB that pops up in EC2 and it's in its world internet facing, the scanner finds it and if you know and it says, "Wow, here's all these critical uh, vulnerabilities that you've got." You see that and right away you fix it, right? You you fix it before anybody else finds it. So that's a really easy way to deal with this: just continual vulnerability scanning of all of your systems. 
it's just, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's that blocking and tackling we were talking about earlier. It's not hard, it's not expensive, but it requires a little bit of discipline in terms of making sure that you're always scanning all of the IP addresses that are internet facing that you own. Ideally, you're even scanning the stuff that's inside of your network because you just don't know, right? You don't just assume mm-hmm. that because it's behind a firewall, it is perfectly risk-free because that doesn't exist, right? So really, you should be scanning yeah. everything. But it means that you're doing that and you've got the discipline to make sure that the scanner is operating and it's still running and, and you're seeing the reports and you're acting on them. Um, and it's got all of your, the latest IP addresses. So when somebody turns up a new VPC in, in Amazon, that that set, you know, that that new network that's slash 24 or whatever it is that you're using is now being scanned as well, right? Mm-hmm. That's really critical. I mean, I would say that's step one, absolutely step one. Step two is is making sure that you've got some kind of more sophisticated antivirus. I hate that term, but, you know, basically something <laughs> more sophisticated, right? Because we all know how good antivirus is, but it really works well after the fact when they add in the signature for whatever it is that you got hit with, right? Um, yeah, but the other stuff's still floating around out there, right? Right. So you have to have something. And the idea is that you're also testing it. So, and even if that means bringing in another firm and saying, hey, help me test this. What happens with this actually protecting against ransomware? And and if so, like, how well does it work? What process would I, you know, what what, what happens if one system gets ransomware? Is it, does this protect me against it not like proliferating through my network? You really sort of got to work these through and do a lot of testing and exercising, like we were talking about with the you know the analogy of the football team. Like, it's not like the football team is you know sitting back, binge watching Netflix for six days a week until it's game day, right? They're practicing, they're watching film, they are busy. They're you know the most successful ones are are I mean it's it's a grueling schedule, and uh, right. that's what your folks got. I mean they don't have the grueling schedule, but. They need to be practicing and exercising and all that kind of stuff. And if they're not, you're going to get hit by something that surprises you. Yeah, I want to I want to add a little bit to that. When you do the port scanning, I would recommend aggressively questioning every exposed port. For example, if you do have the Postgres port exposed for your database server, you know, question why? Because yeah. and I, I've seen this a, quite a bit in the last couple of years. People who are using Database as a service companies, you know, like, hey, sign up with our service and we'll give you a hosted Mongo database and you don't have to do any of the maintenance on it. And then they give you a publicly exposed URL for it. And it's like, dang, dude, you know that like every script kitty on the planet is just beaten on that thing like a rental car all day long, you know, and like a rental car. There's, there's a better way to handle this, you know, because it, no matter, you can apply the patches within seconds after they come out, but eventually someone's going to get through. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like my, my golden rule is no port should be exposed except for port 80. And its only purpose is to redirect traffic to port 443 for your website and a port for VPN access. And then if you happen to be hosting your own email services, you know, have port, was it 25 open? to receive email. And that really should be it. Everything else should just be highly scrutinized. And then since we deal a lot with development, one of the other things you can do is a big place for us to get in trouble as developers is unpatched vulnerabilities in the packages that we use. So, you know, if I'm writing code in Node.js and I install 
an NPM package. Well, that NPM package is built with dependencies on other NPM packages, which is built with dependencies on other NPM packages. So it's almost impossible for me to know what's actually installed on my NPM server. But in the CICD pipeline, we can install a tool like Snyke, and it will look through the manifest every time we push code to master and check for vulnerabilities. And then it has a capability of failing the build if there are if the vulnerabilities exceed whatever your defined threshold is. And so that's a really good way to make sure that you are checking and updating your software in an automated process. Because if it's a manual process, you're going to get busy, you're going to forget whoever's doing it is going to be on vacation or whatever. You know, there's all these reasons that manual processes fail, but if you can automate that as part of your CI/CD pipeline, then it just happens as a course of doing your natural daily activities. I totally agree yeah. with that. And, and just, to, just to hit that one home, the Equifax breach back in 2017, that, was, that stemmed from an Apache struts vulnerability. And Equifax had patched Apache struts in other applications, and they missed it in the one that was compromised. And this all, all this is part of the uh, congressional hearing. Why? I bet yeah. somebody feels dumb, right? How did we miss it? We, we had it solved. How did we miss it? Right? Well, yeah, and that, that CEO is no longer there. And yeah, seriously. But, but you know, you use something like Will is talking about, and you're not manually trying to figure out why what was built on Apache struts? I don't remember. I mean, that was built 20 years ago. I have no idea. Right? It doesn't yeah. matter. You have an automated process for finding that because all those that Equifax was breached something like two or three months after the patch came out. So there's plenty right. of time for that to be patched. Yeah, and, and that brings me to another point that I want to bring up. And it's a very unpopular opinion. So this is the perfect format to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everybody, right. I'm a moron and here's why. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's what being an influencer is all about. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. Yeah, you, you pick the reasons why people hate you. Yeah, but no, like the, the Equifax breach is a perfect example. You know, they were they were vulnerable for months and compromised millions of people's data and the final fine payout was like what seventy five bucks a person. It's like oh, that's that's appropriate. Which brings me to my whole point of this is whenever you're using a third party service, you know, a SaaS service, you outsource a part of your business to them. Is I think it's really important to question them on what their obligation is when they are breached. You know, it's not if they're going to be breached; it's when they're going to be breached. What is their obligation to my customers? And in 99.9% of all SaaS agreements, there is no obligation. So they can leave your customers out high and dry, ruin your business reputation. And if you're lucky, you'll get mentioned on a tweet from the CEO of that company whenever he apologizes publicly for it. <laughs> okay, rant over. <laughs> no, it, it's it's true. And and I don't I again. You know, that's one where I don't I don't know what the solution is because I, I've worked with many companies that try to do a good job of their due diligence when they are vetting third parties, right? Third party third party relationships. But how do you vet? Like, you know, you're doing business with an Equifax first, 
they're not going to give you the time of day anyway because they're much bigger than just about everybody, right? Mm-hmm. right? But yeah. how do you know how good their security processes are? How do you know whether they're going to find that Apache struts vulnerability in 29 out of 30 of their application servers, right? I, I don't know. And I think that's that's an example of where you want to make sure that your insurance is is covering you because that's a risk you don't want to take on yourself. You mm-hmm. can't mitigate it. So you have to transfer it. You transfer it by buying insurance. And, uh, you know, this is, a, I guess, out of scope for, you know, DevOps folks, but just as a thought, I mean, that's how you, I mean, there's, again, there's a solution to that problem, but it is, it's, I think it's by making sure that you are insured properly uh, for that risk. Yeah. And I'm not hundred percent certain it is out of scope for DevOps because I think they, DevOps is probably one of the few places in the business that has enough irons in the fire in different camps to be able to see those bigger picture things. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, because your point. legal team, your legal team's not going to know who your third They're party SaaS know. providers are. No, no. Well, it's interesting that you bring this up, though, because, for example, when I'm dealing with like sponsors and stuff for the shows, a lot of the times the yeah they are involved in in the process of okay you know here's the contract here's the here's what we expect here's what we're going to get and i've seen uh, companies do this with their vendors as well right where they do scrutinize the terms of service and they they do scrutinize this but typically it's the larger companies that are going to push for more favorable terms right no right. you are actually going to help us with these things when they occur. Yeah. You are going to be involved at this level. It, it is going to be your fault when it's your fault, right? Well, yeah, yeah. You know, shared liability agreements are, are, yeah, exactly. If you're big enough, you can, you can demand those. Yeah. But if, yeah, for, for the little guys like you and I, I mean, you're kind of stuck with whatever they're going to do for you or go find another vendor that's going to do it for you, which you may or may not be able to find. Yeah. Or, or do it yourself, which you don't have the resources to either right. do or hire to do. Yep. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I think the bottom line though is that there's there really is a lot that you can be doing to protect yourself. And, and I and I want that message to be to uh, to resonate that it's not hopeless. This isn't an insurmountable problem. Unfortunately, it's just yeah. that many companies are just not spending enough time and, and focus on the security side and making sure that security is just part and parcel of what everybody is doing in their day-to-day jobs. It's not just some, you know, security team off to the side dealing with it. It's everybody. And you're practicing it, you're exercising it. You're, it's just sort of constant vigilance. Yep. And if all that fails, you can always fall back on the Y2K bunker in Idaho. That's right. If all else fails, just get a new job. We're in technology. There's other jobs out there. <laughs> I guess I guess that's another thing, right? Is what if it's not your vendors, right? What if it's what if it's your coworkers? Yeah. At what point do you look at it? I'll, I'll give you an example. So the company I work for, we have this process where we take the the data that we've gathered, and there's a group of business folks involved that QA the data, right? They make sure that the data makes sense based on what we know about the market and things like that that we're gathering it from, and then. What they were doing it was there wasn't a good interface for managing that. And so they would actually, and, and they set all this up before I got there. I, I, I have to disclaim that because I'm embarrassed <laughs> by it. But they they would export it to a, an Excel sheet and then munge it up and then make us check it back into the code base and run a script on it in order to import it back in. And yeah, I, I had a fit put my foot down 
right? When I found out about it, I was like, no, we're not doing this anymore. This was after the, the, the cycle had ended. I said, we're not doing it again this way. And I got some looks and I got, I got a little bit of, of ribbing and harsh treatment from it. But what point do you look at these situations as the technical person and say, this isn't secure or this isn't the best this way a, to do this? This is a really dumb idea. Yeah. Well, I told them, I'm not going to be liable for this data. So you better find another way to do it. And they took me seriously enough to where we're sitting down and actually having a conversation about it now. And they're going to need it in like two or three weeks. But yeah, realistically, what if they told me to go jump in a lake? What can I do? Do I just, do I quit? Do I, I work at a company that's large enough to actually have a security team so I could report it. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, what do you do? And and how serious does it have to be before you go, this just really isn't worth it? Yeah, I, th- I think there's, all of the options are on the table and it's important before you decide which option is for you to fully understand like the whole scope of the thing. I'm not saying that you didn't, but like just as, as advice to someone listening who says, oh, I'm in this position, have the full conversation to, uh, to sit down with whoever you can, which is probably going to be multiple people and say, mm-hmm. how did it get this way? Because most of the time, those, those types of things in my experience have come from just like tribal knowledge and it's yeah. been decades in the process. And at each step of the way, no one invented this. They only changed one little piece of it, you know, and then over time you've changed enough of the pieces where it no longer resembles the original thing that it was. But since we've all been doing it that way all along, nobody really picked up on that until someone comes in from the outside and gets introduced to it for the first time in their life. Whoa, wait, what is this? You know, so I think it's important to have that context of how it got to be that way and then try to articulate the concerns that you have about it and weigh those concerns and risks against the cost of cost of rectifying that. And then, then once you've exhausted all of those options, now you're at the point where you have enough information to make a decision as to whether you report it to the security team or say, no, it's, this isn't the right place for me and pack your bags. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, right? Because I, I had the conversation with a number of people, a couple of the people. Yeah. I mean, that was effectively their response was, oh, wow, I didn't realize it had gotten that bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, no, no, there was no malicious intent or anything. Right. But at the same time, it was, yeah, we definitely need to fix that. But nobody was making it a priority until I actually put my foot down either. And so I think there there's some trade-offs and some conversations. And obviously, it requires some tact, which I do not and never have possessed. But somehow we made it through anyway. And so, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's worth pointing out that, yeah, you have to have the conversations, right? And at the end of the day, I put my foot down and I put my foot down with my boss you know, who's a dev manager, I think is effectively his stated title. And then the project manager. And so they went back to the business people and said, your dev team is not going to move forward on anything else after a while until this is solved. So if you want to be able to use this process, we've got to come up with a way for you to do it that they can implement for you because the way we have been doing it isn't going to happen. And right. And so those conversations did happen and it did go the way that it needed to. But yeah, I just want to add to that. Yeah, have the conversations. I probably could have been a little more tactful in my approach. But at the end of the day, I think at some point you got to put your foot down and just say, look, this just 
this this opens us up to all kinds of problems. And we're either going to do this the right way or somebody else is going to be doing it the wrong way because it's not going to be me. Yeah. But yeah, I, I did want to reiterate your previous point. Yeah. A couple of people said, oh, I didn't realize it had gotten to that point. Right. Yeah. And that's just been my experience, you know, is it's somebody creates this thing, sets it loose in the wild. Mm-hmm. It's it's like this old story. I can't remember where, where it happened, but they put these monkeys in a room with the banana on top of the ladder. And every time a monkey went up to get the banana, they hose it down with a fire hose. And so over time, whenever one of the other monkeys would go up, the other monkeys would drag him back down. Then they started replacing the monkeys one at a time. And over right. time they had replaced all of the monkeys and all of the monkeys knew if anyone goes for the banana to drag that monkey off the ladder, although no one knew why anymore. Right. And then the summary to that is that's how corporate policy gets created. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we are talking to people though within organizations. So how do you start having the conversations about this stuff, right? Not necessarily the kinds of things that I'm talking about, but maybe more along the lines of setting policies and setting up automations and things like that that you guys have brought up. If they're not doing it, how do you go to them and say, no, we need to start doing this? Or how do you start pushing them to start doing things that they've never done before? Or pushing people on your own dang team? It's tricky, right? Because that comes down to like political skills, for lack of a better term, you know, and, and what type of politician are you? Are you Teddy Roosevelt where you're going in with a stick and beating him into submission? Or are you, you know, an Abraham Lincoln that can convince him with, with words and, uh, you know, sell them on their own virtues? So you got to know what your own personality and your own strengths are. But either way, it starts with communication, you know, and highlighting the problem, getting, getting you have to understand what their perception of that is. And then you have to be able to articulate to them what your perception of the risk is so that everyone has the the common ground. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, it's a lot easier said than done. I rolled that out in about 60 seconds, but in reality or in practice, that could take weeks or months. And if you've never done that before, uh, you can expect to fail the first couple of times, which leads to its own set of frustrations. Cause then you're like, damn, I went and tried what that dude said. And now nobody implemented my solution and they think I'm a jerk. <laughs> yeah. I, I will definitely add to that though. It, it does help to know what your strengths are. It, it sounds like Jeffrey's trying to chime in. So I, I, I'm just going to say what I was going to say. I'm kind of a blunt object and I know that. <laughs> and so I know that my approach at some point relatively quickly is going to devolve into, no, we need to do this or I'm going to quit. <laughs> <laughs> my way or the highway? No, I, hey, it I, works. It works a lot. Yeah. I, I was going to say that. I, I think it's, you know, that's the situation where you sort of realize you'll find out really quickly what the culture is like in your organization, right? For instance, like one of the tenets of DevOps, right, is the idea of being a learning organization, right? A continually learning organization. And if that's really the culture, then you if you bring up an issue like this, that's gonna work, right? I mean, you know, there, there's gonna be mechanisms already for you to be able to do that. For the vast majority of us who don't work for organizations like that. It's more of a challenge, but I think it's also perhaps an opportunity to help your organization say, listen, here's a here's a problem. And oh, by the way, I'm only finding one problem. I'm sure there's others lurking. 
our culture, really, we should be encouraging people to bring up these kinds of issues and finding better ways of doing things so that we are a, so we can become a learning organization and we can continually do better. Yeah. Well, and it's, and for the most part, I found that most people, if you can, if you can explain why, then most people will at least hear you out. And so it's only come down to, we're doing, we're not doing this this way, or we are doing it this way, or I'm quitting. It's only come down to that once or twice ever in my 15 year career, right? (laughs) Most of the time you, you give them a good reason and people are going to go, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't want to have that problem. And so they'll, right. They'll figure it out. Yep. And if, if it really does come down to that, I also just want to point out that, yeah, you don't have to accept the liability for those issues. You can go find another place to be. Yep. It's one of the fortunate things about working in tech these days is there's a lot of jobs. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've kind of uh, exhausted our time and then some. Is there anything that we should make sure that we include that we didn't talk about before we're, you know? I think so. I I, I thought we, yeah, we covered covered it pretty well. I just don't want to leave something out and then be like, oh, and make sure that you say this when you, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> this is this is my secret weapon is every time I bring donuts in when I know I'm going to have the hard conversation I don't know so. <laughs> anyway by the way donuts really do work they are miracle food um, <laughs> but yeah let's go ahead and do picks then Jeffrey do you want to start us off I had a feeling you were going to say that Will do you want to start us off man I'd love to start us off I've got this pick today which is going to seem out of the ordinary because um Normally, I say really profound stuff, but I'm going to open this one up with, as humans, it turns out we have a dependency on oxygen. And so this book I've been reading is called The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McEwen. So this is actually pretty cool. I mean, it sounds like based on what I just told you, it's like, really, this is where you're going. But it's actually kind of cool. I'm a certified scuba diver, a certified free diver. I rode 24-hour mountain bike races for a number of years and competed in that. And so I spent a lot of time focusing on my breath. And I just got this book a couple of days ago and I'm just plowing through it because what the guy is going through here is talking about how your body utilizes oxygen. And since we breathe by default, kind of out of necessity, we never really focus on improving our breathing. And because of because our habits have changed over the last thousands of years where we don't really do a lot of physical labor and we're not on the move a lot anymore. We actually don't breathe in line with the way that our bodies should be. And as a result, people are breathing what turns out to be way too much. And so he's got these exercises in here to help you lower your oxygen intake, increase your oxygen utilization and um, increase your carbon dioxide, which improves the efficiency of your muscles. So I think it's been a pretty fascinating read for me. I haven't finished it yet, but I was so excited. I wanted to make that my pick this week. And I think it applies to everyone who, whether you're, you know, if you're an athlete or you're doing a lot of physical activity, it'll be specifically beneficial to you. But even if you're not, and just thinking that you want to be more active, it's got some tips and tricks in there that will help you focus and refine your breathing there as well. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. Well, I'll, I'll talk about all my picks. Uh, Jeffrey, do you have some picks? Yeah. So just following up similar to, to Will's, I read a book a while ago called Micro Resilience. And uh, 
it's sort of like the idea behind it is that we sort of understand the idea of macro resilience of having like an exercise routine and, and that sort of thing that's sort of like long-term, like these are the things that sort of keep me in shape and keep me active and keep me healthy and all that sort of thing. But the idea of micro resilience was the idea that like, what are the things that we can do sort of during our day that are not necessarily to try and, you know, develop muscle tone or, or aerobic exercise or something like that. But, you know, there's just those moments during the day when we just feel exhausted or we've just feel overwhelmed or whatever it is that just, and a couple of things that she brings out in the book is one is like, you know, sometimes you feel hungry during the day and uh, her comment is a lot of times it's not that you're hungry, it's actually that you're thirsty. And many times if you just drink, you know, just take, take some time and like drink down a big glass of water or something like that, that it actually sort of re-energizes you. And I, I have personally found that that really helps instead of getting, you know, tr- sort of looking for like the quick energy bar or something like that, just drink some water. It, it's huge. Or, you know, she was talking about like just standing up from your chair and not just like standing up, but actually do some physical activity, like, you know, moving your arms around, moving them up, uh, up above your head, that sort of thing. Again, just sort of getting your blood flowing and it just sort of re-energizes you, sort of rejuvenates you. Like another example was, you know, sometimes if you're on the road, I haven't been on the road much in the last year and a half, but if you're on the road, uh, you're staying in a hotel and they have those like little swimming pools. She's like, you know, even if you just like start your day off in the morning by just jumping in the pool, doing a couple of laps, again, it's not for endurance or anything like that, but it just gets your blood flowing and, you know, sort of helps you just start your day off. So I think there was a lot of really, really good ideas of just how to sort of deal with those sort of lulls that you get during your day. And rather than grabbing, you know, a chocolate bar or an energy bar or something like that, like finding other ways that are probably healthier, that'll help you sort of get your energy levels back up. I love it. And to be perfectly honest, that's one of the things that I've done lately to help mitigate some of the tension headaches I've had is just drinking water. I don't know what it was, but I cut back on the energy drinks and sodas I was drinking and just started drinking more water. And that's made a huge, huge difference for me. So yeah. Yep. I'm going to throw in a few picks of my own. So what I was going to say on Will's pick about oxygen was just that, and I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but one of my goals is to complete an Ironman. And so I've been just getting out and swimming and running and biking. And to be perfectly honest, it, it's been interesting. I, I was a swimmer in, in high school and did a little bit in college. And so, you know, kind of my breathing patterns kind of stem from that, even when I'm running or biking. But I have some friends who are, who are runners all their lives, right? And then got into triathlons and started swimming. And just the cadence of movement and swimming and stuff has anyway it's changed the way that they breathe and the way that they exercise and things like that and so it's been interesting to me to just see how all that comes together and i'm interested to see what's in this book as far as picks go i found so my my swim coach because i'm on a swim team now in the morning i go swim practice i i had an equipment issue with some of my fins apparently she wanted me to have longer fins which are more work to swim with but also make you go faster um, and help keep you on top of the water. Uh, she sent me a link to some fins. I'll put a link in the show notes, but they're kind of a little bit longer, but they're not like the really, really long scuba fins. They're more like snorkel fins. And uh, so I'm going to pick that just because 
they're they're nice to swim with, but they're not as big time heavy duty as some of the scuba fins. And then I think I may have mentioned this last week, but uh, I'm still reading uh, Atlas Shrugged, and I'm I'm really digging it. It's funny I picked it on JavaScript Jabber, and one of the other hosts basically said, "Don't take it too seriously." But I find that <laughs> I agree with a lot of the opinions in there, so. I, I'm going to pick that just because I've really, really been enjoying it. And then I picked up a new book. I've only read the foreword and a little bit of the first chapter, but it's already appealing to me. And it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. and just talks about getting what you want from life and uh, what you can do to eliminate uh, hurry from your life and, and some of the stress that you have around some of the stuff that you're probably trying to accomplish with life. So... Uh, anyway, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Right on. Cool. Good stuff. All right. Well, with that, I guess we'll wrap up. This was, we've had some really great conversations lately. I've really enjoyed these and especially just being able to sit and chat and go through some of this stuff related to some of these uh, concerns and breaches has been great as well. So anyway, we'll just wrap up here. And until next time, folks, Max out. <laughs>